What's good, Mimer Timers? I hope you guys are having a wonderful July. For today's episode, we have Matt Smart, who is the COO of GLT Limited. GLT Limited is a global trading company, trading crypto and providing financial solutions for different companies all over Asia. It's pretty cool what he does. If you don't know much about investment, trading, or crypto, as frankly, I don't. I'm still learning after a couple of years of getting into it myself. You know, you might find it boring or irrelevant or you just don't understand it. And yet I know some of you guys are going to find it really interesting. We also talk about his nomad capitalist-esque lifestyle and his background growing up in the Mormon church and how that made him the person that he is today. Because he's a super cool guy, very kind, compassionate human being who's doing all kinds of cool stuff, making moves throughout Asia throughout the past couple of years. And I know he'll continue to make big moves. So I hope you enjoyed today's episode. And if there's anything you got out of it, maybe a crypto or investment friend, or maybe someone who grew up in the church, right? There's, I'm hitting all these sweet, sweet notes right here. I hope you really get something awesome out of it because I love this guy so much. And without further ado, Matt Smart, let's get it. You know what time it is? It's mime time. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another edition of Smart Time. Today, I'm speaking with a very smart person that I know, and his name is Matt Smart, a.k.a. Jason Statham's stunt double. Matt, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks, Mike. Where are you right now? I am in Phuket, Thailand. Mm -hmm. Are you staying at an apartment or an Airbnb? Yeah, I have an apartment here. Okay. And how long have you been there now? Uh, I came out here at the end of January, and I've been pretty much trapped here since. <laughs> There's and worse places you, to be trapped. But, when, you know. <laughs> when were you planning to come back to Korea? I was expecting to be back in April. I thought, I thought April 1st I would be back in Korea and be in Korea for April, May, part of June, um, and then back here again, July, August, September-ish is what I was thinking. But, you know. Plans change. <laughs> Plans change, and the C word, Corona, gets in the way. Um, Matt, uh, what, if to, if you were to explain your, what you do, what is GLT, and um, what what are your what's your day to day life look like? Right. So, I mean, GLT is a is a private partnership. It's me and a business partner, um, and we are doing um, investments. I guess, like you would say, um, that's, I guess maybe alternative investments would maybe be, you know, we do collateralized uh, lending here in Thailand. Uh, I do a lot of crypto trading um, and we are kind of just open to, we're structured so that we can, we can get involved in anything that looks interesting to us, which is really exciting for me. And so okay. I'm not super restricted by geographic locations or things like that, which I like. Yeah. And w what kind of investments look interesting to you? Um, I mean, like, like, like 401k and maxing out your Roth IRA, right? Like that's some cutting edge stuff. That, that's, that's some, what, that is, that's some cutting edge stuff. And, and that's important. Um, you know, we're, we're looking at, um, I mean, I'm trying to maximize our returns, right? So we're looking, I, you know, I've been positioned in Asia since 2013, um, and so we're very interested in Asia in general, but we're look, we like emerging and developing markets. Um, I think that there are 
there's a, sort of a lack of access to more, I guess, even even some traditional, but a, a lot of different financial products that are useful for people. Um, we're fairly relatively creative in what we can come up with and solutions that we can find for people. And um, I think that makes it interesting. And I, I like that I'm not restricted by product type or borders. You know, I, I've worked in traditional finance for a long time as a trader, and I always had a, a book that I managed that was usually with, with a fair amount of restrictions. You know, I could only trade ETF products in the U.S., or I could only trade COSPI-related products in Seoul. And it's nice to have, you know, sort of a gam- be, be able to select any product that's appropriate or any sort of structure that's appropriate and come up with a way that that works for everybody. What what's investment that has given you good returns um, in the past? I don't know, three to five years. What's something that you thought has been really solid? Whether uh, it's like ter- trading, in, whether it's trading, in terms of or what we did in, mm-hmm. in terms of what we've done. Yeah, like trading's been good for us. You know, we were well positioned um, relatively early in the cryptocurrency both run up and sell off um, going into eighteen. Um, you know, being based in Asia, we were able to take advantage of a lot of the arbitrage opportunities that came up, which are, you know, low risk and at the time quite high returns. So that was really interesting and really fun um, in terms of trading wise. Like, I, I love it. It's great. So um, I think I've told you before, in the height of that, I was sleeping in two hour shifts twice a day in order to trade the U.S. and the Korea market. Um, and uh, it was crazy, but it was fun. And so that was, that was been really good. Um, I think the, you know, we're still kind of getting our feet off the ground here in Thailand with what we're working on, but I think it's positioned to be very interesting longer term. And I think the returns will be good. That's awesome, bro. Um, you're 40 now. Happy birthday. Thank you. Yeah. Just barely turned 40. Yeah. Yeah. Um, would you say that, um, from, the time you started working in finance uh, back in your days in Chicago, all, all the way up till now, uh, working with your partnership, do you feel like you had a relatively successful and profitable career? Like, what what are um, your short and long term goals? Like, do you, do you, does it still excite you? Uh, it still excites me absolutely. Um, I do think I've had a profitable and a good career. I think it's been. Um, it's been exciting at the very least, right? I started trading in 2007 and started just before the financial crash or as, as the real estate market was starting to fall apart, right? And I was at a high-frequency trading firm in Chicago, and we made gobs of money as the market crashed because we were able to short basically the entire market. And I would, we would short everything all day and then buy it back at the end of the day and do it again the next day, right? And it was just a total free fall. So that was kind of a delusional way to start into the financial uh, start a financial career right i mean the amount of money that was made like i didn't get to keep of course but the amount of money that was made was staggering you know and um it was exciting and then the market hit bottom and i was the young guy on the totem pole and they cut me in with eventually half of the rest of the firm uh and you know the the lows in finance are really low right i mean after the through 09 and through basically 13, I was just kind of struggling. Wasn't sure if I'd stay in finance, wasn't sure if I'd get to trade again, and then found this job in Korea and just packed up and moved. Um, I gave away my stuff. I put everything in two suitcases, jumped on a plane, 
landed in Seoul and uh, started trading Kospi options um, and got to do that for quite a few years. What year was was that when you first came to Korea? I I landed in uh, July of 13. Actually, just about this time, I think it was the fifth. Yeah, I think it was the 15th of July. So, you know, in 2013, I came out there and um, was working at a Korean securities firm, which is a huge adjustment, right? Uh, Completely different style from like prop trading firms in Chicago, right? Way more conservative, way less sophisticated, way behind in terms of technology, way less understanding, uh, way more regulation. Um, Yeah, like just everything was a huge transition. Okay. Uh, How would you consider... um the u.s and korean finance systems like working in these industries like how different are they i guess you've mentioned a few big differences yeah they're massively different right i mean in the u.s i mean it it, it runs across the board right i mean i would say technology wise and product wise and things like that korea lags the u.s by probably at least 10 years five to 10 years i would say you know um, products that were incredibly popular many years ago are just starting to catch on um and and Korea's just kind of they take their own pace with that, you know, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? I mean, a lot of the products that the U.S. has come up with have gone horribly wrong too. So there's there's good reason to be conservative. Um, in terms of people, I think Korea has doesn't hasn't positioned itself as well as it could. They um, they don't incentivize people well. I met I met a trader who it was midway through the year, and he was like, well. I've maxed out what I can make of my bonus this year, so I'm just kind of hanging out for the rest of the year. In the U.S., that wouldn't happen. That you would, you know, your bonuses can be so big um, that if you were halfway to your goal, or if you'd reached your goal by June, you were going to have a massive year that year, and you would just keep pushing and you would trade like crazy, you know. But the Korea, like, they don't pay bonuses the same way. They don't incentivize people to actually push on their own and. You know, again, there's uh, there's good and bad to that, but I prefer to be incentivized, right? <laughs> like it's... Yes, um, as we all should prefer to be incentivized properly. So to we should all be incentivized to like you know take more action and um, yeah. I I assume that's why you started branching out to you know working doing investments outside of Korea. At one point after working at a you know in Korean securities. Where you're like, maybe there's like other opportunities like to make money with my money. Yeah, I mean, that, that was there was a combination of, of factors that happened uh, in order for me to make that transition, right? I mean, um, one, the Korean firm that I was working at didn't want to continue the business with my desk. And so they cut me and my team, um, which was still an odd business decision that I haven't quite wrapped my head around. Um, the desk was Delta neutral, so there was very, rel- very low risk and yet, uh, very consistent returns and, and a good return on your money for not taking any risk. If I could have done things my way, I would have had some added some risk to it. And I think your portfolio returns would have been greatly improved with a very small amount of additional risk, but you know, they did what they did. Um, and then, yeah, like opportunities came up, like I had started trading cryptocurrency on my own um there they were markets that were you know still fairly illiquid but volatile and interesting and so i'd started doing that and an opportunity this it turned into this opportunity with glt where we combined the you know i guess corporate and institutional trading with my understanding of crypto and other markets and 
And then from there, we've just kept expanding and looking at other things that we could do that we are where we can fill an interesting niche, right? Like I'm not, we're not a massive fund. I don't have hundreds of millions of dollars. So I can't compete on certain deals that those kinds of firms do, but I, but I have more than $10, right? So like there's certain deals that I can do. And so I'm just constantly looking for where we can fill an interesting gap there. And part of why we like these emerging economies is because um, you typically have people with that are um, maybe asset rich, but cash poor. And that's something that and, and it, it, you know, the cost of living in many of these areas is quite relatively low. So it doesn't take a huge amount of capital to have a pretty big impact in terms of and, and getting a return. So that's what we're looking at right now. So there might be people with like lots of assets, but you know not enough liquid capital. So you step in and provide liquid capital at, at a yeah, certain at a decent interest rate. Yeah, and that's one thing that we're working on here in Thailand, right? Is we're doing some collateralized lending and things where we take we use assets as collateral and we provide short term liquidity for them in terms of cash, and then you know and go from there. And that's it's. You know, it's not rocket science. This isn't like a new cutting edge business. This kind of product has been around for ages, but um, but we're willing to do it. And we've, you know, come up with some, I think, a good way to, to manage the risks associated with it. And, you know, so. I think I think I mean, that sounds fun because like I, I know you and you get a little nerdy with these things. It's like you're setting you're setting up a big machine. It's like yeah. not exact, not exactly as complex as like you know a, like a Rube Goldberg device, but like you're you're building your sandcastles and like oh I hope the sandcastle lasts and then you know right. you see the machine tick and then it makes you money. I think yeah. that's really cool. Like aside from Thailand, like what other countries have you um, like you know sought to do investment opportunities in? I mean, I've done a bunch of research into Turkey and I really liked Turkey. I still think it's interesting. Um, there's some issues with getting on the ground. Obviously, there's been some political unrest. They devalued the currency. There's a bunch of things. But I think that a lot of that can still be mitigated. And I do think it's still an interesting place. Um, here, I, I, I think, you know, Southeast Asia, I think is still really interesting. Uh, we're currently doing a bunch of research in Latin America as well. So um, my part, business partner and I both love Mexico. We just, I'm just I think I'm a huge fan. I like it. I like everything about Mexico, maybe maybe minus the uh, cartel drugs and violence, but the rest of it is all pretty great, right? And so we've got some stuff that we're working on there that's interesting. Um, yeah, yeah. And we're trying to take it, I'm just taking it step by step. I'm, I'm only, you know, this is small. I'm basically running it. My business partner has another job and does his own thing. So you know, I don't, in terms of manpower, I can only do so much, right? And so we're trying to get this, you know, Thailand up and running and functioning the way we want it to. And then I can move my attention to something else to get it up and running and functioning. And we just keep sort of moving around like that. Um, eventually we'll add more staff and more help, but, um, but yeah, not yet. I see. Well, aside from the fact that you're not in Korea right now, um, how is, how's Corona affected like your, your business this year? I mean, it's been tough, right? It's been hard for everybody, right? Um, my, you know, before this, I traveled probably every month I was on the road some, right? And so just in terms of meeting people, networking, you know, stuff like that, that that's all been, you know, 
just as pretty much non-existent. Um, it's hurt, you know, people, you know, customers, like clients and stuff that we've worked with, like they're short on cash. Their businesses have taken hit. I mean, Thailand has been completely locked down, right? When I, you know, for a while here, you couldn't leave the city you were in. There are police checkpoints at every city. You couldn't come in and out. Oh, please um, tell me, tell me more. Yeah, Thailand. Yeah, the yeah no, so th- Thailand. Thailand was really harsh. I mean, there was a, a you know curfew was in effect. You couldn't be out at night. They would go to. They were going door to door testing. They, um, yeah, all businesses were closed except grocery stores. They shut down Seven Eleven. They shut down everything. <gasps> I mean, yeah. Not 7-Eleven. Um, how, how, wait, well, they shut down 7-Eleven? That's crazy. They, they, they closed everything. I mean, anybody who's been to Thailand knows, like, people pay their bills at 7-Eleven. Like, it's like a, it's always, I mean, that's just a store that's sort of always there, always open, always available. No, they closed it. Um, for a while, they were going to, you know, they left it open at first saying, oh, you know, you can buy food there. It's okay. And then, you know, give it, a, like, another week. They just, they shut it all down. Um, you had, um, yeah, I mean, they closed the beach. You couldn't go to the beach. Um, there was a period where the, they were saying that it was okay to exercise outside, but uh, there were reports of foreigners being arrested for being outside exercising. Um, so I carried like a shopping bag with me when I'd go out and take an exercise. And then that, you know, I never got stopped, but my thought was I'd just go, oh, I'm going to the store and pray it got me through it. Because again, like, you know, the, the everything, the news reports all said it was fine to do, but they were, it was really, really strict, you know, and the airports are closed. The, they closed the bridge to Phuket. They closed all the ports, no boats in or out. I mean, the whole place was just shut down. And how long was it locked down like that? Like, I, I assume you have more freedom now. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, most of it's lifted now. The air, the international airport is. They're not accepting international flights yet. They're accepting a few domestic flights. The bridge is open. I'm not sure about ports for boats. Um, most businesses are open now. Um, even even the um, like Bangla, like the the nightlife districts are starting to reopen. Although every I haven't been. Everyone I've heard who's gone and I talked to said that there's nobody there. It's really dead still. But like technically, you could go out, I guess. Um, so that's all starting to improve, but you know, Phuket is really tourist driven and there's no tourists. And so, you know, the businesses are open, but it's almost in some ways maybe worse because now you've got costs that you're running, but there's nobody to sell anything to, you know? Yeah. So, but it, you know, that was, I'm trying to remember exactly when they locked stuff down. May and June were really, they started to lift it in May, uh, or in, in June they started to lift it. So all of May was locked down entirely. Um, and I think end of April, they tightened even more and, um, it just, you know, but, you know, they had about 220 some odd cases. Um, I think there were three deaths here and they don't have any active cases right now. So, and they haven't for weeks. So, I mean, it's, oh, there's always a trade off with this kind of thing. Um, I think that, you know, the economist in me will just go thinks the optimal number of cases is not zero. It's, you know, we don't, you don't want deaths and you don't want people to be sick, but the cost of getting zero cases is really severe and it's probably not worth it ultimately, you know? Yeah, that's, that's hard. And like Phuket, yeah, being tourist driven, I mean, there's, there's basically no more revenue. Like there's no money. I, yeah. I went to Boracay at the mm-hmm. beginning of this year for the first time, my first time in the Philippines. And it was like high season. It was just packed, just people from all over the world. And even, even though it was packed and a bit commercialized, like I still had a great time. Sure. Beautiful. And, and uh, to go in high season, 
you know, the tickets were like over 400,000 one a person, but mm-hmm. um, it, was, it was still totally worth it to go with my best friend and my girlfriend. Just yeah. seeing so many people, meeting so many people. And then months later to see like YouTube videos and to talk with friends who are on that island, like locals, you know, to, to see that's completely dead. It was like really disheartening. It's like, wow, yeah, an island. Think about an, a tourist-driven island economy. It's just like yeah. no one is there. No, the There's shops nothing. are all closed, beaches closed. It's yep. really, it's really tragic, especially for the locals who depend completely depend on tourist, um, you know, economy. Absolutely. Um, and like I heard, it's kind of opening up back up. But I'm just, re- I'm just really grateful to be living in Korea right now because, um, you know, it's it's safe, it's clean. You know, Itaewon is dead, just like maybe Phuket is, but they're like sure. yeah, 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 sure. I'm, I'm really lucky, and I try to find gratitude in my day to day life and be like, okay, well. You know, even though it's hard in Korea for Korean people, mm-hmm. um, well, at least it's not completely like tourist driven like some of those areas. Well, that's and, and from what I've heard, I mean, I'm not haven't been there, but from the people I've talked to, I think Korea has done a good job at managing it. I know, like, there's you know there have been spikes and there's been other things, but like Korea hasn't ground to a halt. People are still working. People are still doing their thing. Um, it's not like the U.S., which is now doing over 60,000 cases a day. I mean, you know, like I think Korea did a good job. They got out testing. They tested ag- aggressively. They, you know, came up with a way to manage it. Like I said, I don't think the optimal case number of cases is zero. It's not. You, we've got to be able to live and function, too. And I think Korea is doing a good job, honestly, you know. Yeah. So for that reason, before Corona, I was just like, oh man, I, I wouldn't want to live in America. God bless America. Like I, I'm so happy to live in Korea. And I feel that even more so with Corona 2020, in the Corona apocalypse. Yeah, seriously. Um, uh, but, you know, these days, like I'm so grateful to to live here. And, you know, every, every once, every year right around July, you know, my birthday goes by and I think about um, like where I come from, which is like, you know, small town America, small town in Rhode Island, USA. And to think yeah. that I moved to Korea like almost eight years ago to to find myself and pursue like my big city dreams. It's, it's like a dream come true, man. Like I'm so happy that I moved here and I'm really grateful to be alive like every single day. And I meet amazing, intelligent, kind people like yourself. Um, I wanted to ask you more about like where you grew up, if you wouldn't mind sharing that with the audience and um, uh, how, how you think that shaped you as a person. Sure. Um, where sure. did you grow up? I was born in Utah. I was born in Ogden, Utah, uh, which is north of Salt Lake City, about 45 minutes to an hour. Um, I was I'm the second child of six kids in a Mormon family. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, I, I did that whole thing for a while, you know. Um, I served a Mormon mission. I came to Korea initially in 2001 as a missionary. And I spent two years there. That's where I learned Korean. And uh, predominantly, I, when I came back to the U.S., I studied it in college as well to try to round it out. I, I, when I was there, I learned to speak and read. Uh, I couldn't write very well. And so when I came back, I focused on that and took some more classes in college because um, they were fun and easy way to make friends and stuff, you know, and, um, and I liked it. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's had a big impact on me. I'm not actively well I, i'm not religious at this point um i don't really um believe in any of that um but it did have a big impact on me i think you know it's a 
important how you live your life and it's important to treat people well. And, um, I think it's important to be generous and kind to those around you. Um, and I, you know, I also, you know, I don't drink. I never have. Um, it doesn't interest me. I like to have a good time. You've been out with me. Like I, I think, uh, I think I do just fine without it. And, um, and I think that's been a positive influence in my life. Honestly, you know, I've seen, I've had friends struggle. I, my first boss in Korea, his life just went off the rails and became a completely non-functional alcoholic. Um, I've seen it quite a few times and it's not pretty. And I, you know, I'm glad I don't have to worry about that. Not to, you know, not to like be a buzzkill or kill a party. Right. I, I love a good time and I don't care if people drink when they go out and have a good one, but um, I'm happy with my decision not to. And, you know, that was a, that's been a takeaway from my upbringing for sure. That's, that's great. Yeah. I mean, having just finished a, a four month, uh, sobriety streak, I, I, the, the more every time, like I do it, I'm just like, wow, like people go absolutely wild. Like, uh, like on, on a busy weekend, um, mm -hmm. pre Corona, it's just like, you know, people, they go, they want to like let loose stress or they just want to go wild. Maybe they just had a bad breakup. You know, people, sure. people go out, you see like the best and worst of humanity sometimes going out and especially, Oh, totally. well, when there's alcohol involved, but you, you like, I just think it's funny coming from your perspective. Cause I imagine Matt, Matt must think like people are just so stupid. Like when they, when they like get so I, drunk I, and wasted and they throw up and just like, Matt must be like, Oh but my I God. Do, I really <laughs> don't though, because I, I think that I, um, yeah, I don't think people are stupid and it doesn't bother me when people, I, I, like I'm a fairly high stress person. Like I'm, I, you know, I've always worked in a field that has quite a bit of stress. Um, I get stressed out. I understand wanting to let loose and, um, I like to let loose. I love to go out dancing. I love to burn. And I know like that feeling is exciting. And I like, I like that, you know, and I can see how alcohol adds to it. And, um, I don't think that's crazy. I don't at all. You know, I mean, there is a point in the night I have found after, you know, I've, I've been doing this for my whole life now. Um, there is a point where conversations only make sense if you're drunk. And <laughs> I try to leave. I try to be gone by that point because um, no one remembers. Um, no one remembers the conversation except me, which is not particularly great. <laughs> um, and there's no way to there's no way to add or argue to the conversation. So, like that's when you're at that state of intoxication, I usually I usually bounce. Right, remove yourself from the situation. Yeah, that's but good. but again, I don't I don't see it as a, oh these people are stupid. It's just like people just are out. We've all got stress. We all like to burn it. We like to relax and find ways to do it. And alcohol helps that you know so yeah 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 i think i think that's a great um takeaway i i think that's a pretty good in, influence like from your background growing up in the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints which is right. which is well, the, the funny name for the mormon church right yes. Well, and when I grew up, right, I grew up and because I was in a Mormon community, there were lots of, you know, it was lots of people didn't drink, but many people did. And so it was not mm. odd. It wasn't weird to go to a party and have half the party not drinking and half the party drinking. Mm. I was and I was a little bit older. So I got my driver's license first. So I was designated driver from an early time. And I've had, you know, I'll have friends who drink and friends who don't. And 
I, you know, I was always comfortable socializing without it. And it was always useful to have a designated driver that you didn't have to worry if they were going to like slip up that night and have a few or anything like that. Right. It was just never an issue. So like, yeah, I, um, I think you don't need alcohol to socialize. You, You don't need it, but it helps many people to relax. And it's a conditioning thing too, to some extent, right? Like, people get used to socializing in certain ways and then um and then it feels uncomfortable to not be doing those things so you know that's just yeah i think it's just life yes um yeah it's just life like you don't especially after you know taking these streaks of sobriety i i try to really reinforce to myself that Although I enjoy alcohol, I, I don't need it to have a good time. I can go exactly. out, I can dance, I can connect with people, I can listen to people. And if I really want a drink in my hand, then I can have some club soda or whatever. You know, if, if, I, if, if that's the issue. Otherwise, you know, if I'm out and about where peop, in an environment where people go out to meet, you know, eat, meet people, then I shouldn't need an excuse. I can just go up to anyone and be like, hey, how are you? Are you having a good time? What brings you here? In just like a friendly, curious manner. Yeah, you know, I don't need I don't need alcohol, right? I don't need to use anything as a crutch. Like I am who I am. I have exactly. value to offer, and I'm and I have curiosity about other people. I want to connect, and anyone can adopt these attitudes. No one needs right. like some substance outside themselves. Right now, and now the the caveat that I would add to that that where where not drinking can, I mean, there I think with all your decisions, there's always a cost and a benefit. Right. And for me, the benefits outweigh the costs. But one of the costs that I've found from not drinking is that there are many, the many people bond very closely by drinking together Mm. and by not drinking with them. Some people don't create, they have a harder time bonding with you. You have to make more of an effort, you know? And for me, again, for me, the cost is I'm, I'm okay with the cost. Um, but it is something I think that people will notice. I'm sure you probably noticed when you, when you've taken time to be during and done these sobriety periods, when people want to do shots or they want to buy you a drink or they want to do, they want to connect that way. And you're like, Oh, I'm not drinking, buy me a club soda. And for some people it doesn't quite, it doesn't cause the, create the same connection. Right. Yeah. And, and it's like, especially since I've gotten back on the juice, right. Since my mm-hmm. birthday, like I find myself like if they're, I'm with someone like I want them to drink with me, you know, and just yeah. like, and, and it's like this is this is kind of stupid, but it's like it's like a like a primitive thing, like bonding over consuming like the same thing, like you know, like the yeah. pack, you know, drinking from the same source or the pack, you know, um, consuming from the same deer that they slay or whatever. Yeah, yeah, oh, and that's you know, I you got you protesting, you know, for my 40th birthday this year, I sent out a survey because I couldn't couldn't see anybody, right? Which was and awesome and so was nerdy. Really, I love it. It was super nerdy, and I Wait, can totally you please explain? On, yes, explain the survey. Sure, I'll tell you. So I sent out eight questions to the 40 people in my life that I feel close to, um, family and friends. And I had people fill out surveys and then I did a bunch of a data analysis and wrote a little summary and sent it out to everyone. It's about as nerdy and dorky as you can get. But I asked people things like what were their first memory and their favorite memory of us? Um, what were four characteristics they didn't like about me? Four characteristics they liked about me? First, first four words that came to mind when they think about me. Um, what year did we meet? Something that, and I mean, any other advice, something like that. It was brief. I tried to keep it brief. Um, and 
And then everyone, you know, a bunch of people responded and I put together all the data and got to play around with it and build some charts in Excel, which makes me happy. So, um, but one of the things that I realized and noticed in, in that um, was that often there were sort of two for, for me, because again, I, I don't drink so, but I do love a good adventure. So for bonding with people, there were really two types of events that happened. Either we went on some crazy adventure together, right? Or it was something really simple and small, like when we sat and had lunch together this one time, or we did this and sharing food, sharing drink, sharing those sorts of um, things with as humans, I think we connect that way. I think it's part of the, maybe the tribalism in us that you don't, you don't do that with people you don't trust. You don't do that with people you don't like. And I think we inherently either develop trust with people we do those things with, or we feel that connection with them. And, uh, yeah. So I, I think, again, I think the drinking makes sense in that sense. Um, sharing food together is another thing that, that bonds lots of people, right? You know, I love, I love doing a rooftop barbecue. That was one of my favorite things in Seoul. Um, have a bunch of good food and friends over and, um, there were lots of memories of that that people had of, I, I really enjoyed this. I really enjoyed the time we sat on the rooftop and ate, you know? Yeah. I've had some of the best times of my life in Seoul, just hanging out with you and James and other good friends. Um, it, I love putting your sweet, sweet meat all up in my mouth. I mean, I, <laughs> I crave that like every year. So this year it feels a little sad. Something's missing. Sure, it's like, I sure, miss, sure. I miss Matt's, Matt's meat. On a bar. <laughs> like, cause really we had it every year, like consecutively. Yeah. I've done it for a long time, you know, and I tried to, I tried to do something, you know, spring, summer, fall. I, I love to do the Halloween thing, you know? Um, yeah, I, I think those kinds of things are a great way to bond with people and something to look forward to. And, um, and I had a good time trying to perfect steak, you know, I tried to get it just right. And I think I've, I think I've got it pretty dialed in there. So. Yeah, that's been so awesome. You know, and I always like, appreciated your generosity just like hey bring some snacks or please bring some uh drinks like i'm not gonna drink but just to share with other people and you you provide the meat and your awesome rooftop space with a beautiful view of the city like everyone loves that everyone remembers that and um you know you just provide such value and such positive energy and and laughter and a shiny head for um you know your shiny beacon on that rooftop uh, like I learned so much just like how to be a good host and how to be a good friend and how to care for people and like um table manners and stuff so i really appreciate that and i i miss you dude i, I, I miss it too that. yeah yeah that's 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 something that i've again i really enjoyed that that was some part of part of i think my favorite thing in seoul was just having people over and being able to just enjoy enjoy the space and the company and all that and it's something that i've definitely missed here you know i don't have that network here with things locked down it's been tough to meet new people um and so, um, yeah, yeah, I, um, look forward to things sort of maybe returning to normal where you can socialize a bit more and, you know, yes. And I look forward to that as well. Um, I would like to go back though, cause I, I have a couple of questions, um, sure, regards sure. to like, uh, you know, growing up in the Mormon church, if you don't mind, like what sure. was the community like, um, like what kind of 
what kind of people did you connect with? Like, was like, cause the stereotype for me is like, you know, Mormons are so nice, right? And you're actually one of the nicest people I know. So you just reinforced that stereotype uh, for me. Like, there what, are worse there... stereotypes. Right? Yes. No, mm -hmm. I mean, the community was supportive, right? I mean, like, um, and I think many religions and church organizations provide that kind of community. There were always people around when, you know, when someone, got sick, people would bring meals over, people would help out. I remember, you know, my, I, I'm the second of six kids. So I, my mom had one really hard pregnancy where she had, was on bed rest and she couldn't get up and move around. And my dad was working, you know, and working overtime, trying to make sure he had enough, you know, money to feed the growing family and all of that. And people in the neighborhood brought food. They came and cleaned the house. They did a bunch of stuff to, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a good community in that way. You know, um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I was surrounded by people who, in general, tried to be honest, tried to be trustworthy, tried to care about people around them. Um, I think, if anything, it probably made me a bit naive coming out, like leaving, um, you know, sometimes people in Utah refer to it as the bubble, or I recently heard the Zion curtain. Um, <laughs> the Zion curtain. Ooh, yeah. I like that. Um, but it's, you know, it's an, in, it's an isolated community. I mean, you've got the Rocky mountains on one side, you've got a big desert on the other. Um, there's just, you know, it's geographically isolated and it creates a little bit of a bubble where people kind of know that and live there. And when you get outside of it, the world doesn't always work the same way, you know? And I've definitely had to, you know, when I moved out to Chicago for school, I, I had to up my street smarts a bit. You know? Okay. Like, what was like your first um, like culture shock? Like when you're leaving the bubble? Like you you went to Chicago for for college. I did. And so so, I so mean, that was your first, first time I, moving out of the community. Well, so I mean, the first I left for Korea first. I did a, uh, I served my mission before I went to college. So um, and you know, as a missionary, that was definitely you're you're out of the bubble, right? I had I had people. I mean, I was. I was in Korea during, again, 2001, 2003. Um, there were some problems with American military. There was, there was a big scandal at the Olympics um, between the U.S., a U.S. speed skater and Korea. Um, people screamed and yelled at me in the streets. People called my phone and told me to go back to the U to, to get out of Korea. I mean, I, you know, a drunk guy tried to beat me up. Um, I was what? chased. I mean, like, you know, I saw a lot of stuff. I learned a lot as a missionary, you know, and like I was not seriously hurt or anything like that. But like there were times where it was scary and there was times where you definitely realized that um, you're on your own. Um, so that actually gets me to another sort of takeaway. I'm, you know, I'm very much, I think, I mean, I'm a white, middle-aged, middle-class male, right? And in American society, there's a certain amount of privilege that comes with that. But I think that being great, being in a minority religious community, it gave me some insight into what other minority groups feel. Because, you know, I did an internship in New York in college and uh, I was like the Mormon kid and I didn't drink and I was singled out for it. And it, it, and, and it wasn't, again, like it's hard. This is a first world problem, right? I mean, it's, that's still annoying. Like that would still bother, that would bother anybody. Of course. Right. But I mean, this is, and this is the thing, like it gave me, 
a glimpse or a bit of insight into what it's like. But again, I mean, so again, like, how do you complain about this, right? I'd gotten, I got an internship at an investment bank in, in on Wall Street. Like, that's about as privileged as you can get in many ways, right? But I also got to see that, like, what it's like to be outside, right? And moving to Korea, that was also, you know, as a foreigner in Korea, you're not Korean. And, you know, I was, when I was there as a missionary, there were stores that refused to sell stuff to me. There were places that told me I, as a foreigner I had to leave. Uh, and even when I came back as a, and was working in finance there, there were businesses that would not do business with me because I was not Korean. And it's incredibly frustrating, but it gets you, lets you feel and understand what that has to be like for other people. And I think that that's a valuable thing to understand. Yeah. And I'm sure you've also learned how to deal when you're the foreigner living in another country, like how to overcome those obstacles, how to still make connections, how to see past these things, not take them personally. So you do what you want to do and you, you do what you need to do. Yeah. You have to adjust and you have to adapt. Right. Um, but it is it is always very different living in a society where the default it looks like you, and so you know that you again. If I'm in the United States and I get stopped by the police, I have a pretty good sense of what's going to happen. Right? There's not a lot of fear for me. There doesn't, you know. Unfortunately, there is for other other groups, and we're, you know. But in Thailand, I don't want to be stopped by the police. I don't trust the police. When I lived in Mexico, I definitely didn't want to get stopped by the police. Mm. I didn't want, I didn't want to be, I, I did everything I could to avoid the police there. When I moved to Mazatlan, um, the, the locals told me everything is good in Mazatlan except the police. And so, you know, I knew like, that's not, those aren't people who are going to help me and just stay away. And, you know, if, you know, hopefully, and at the time, you know, I didn't need any, there was no, nothing serious happened to me or anything like that. What's or, up with, uh, sorry, what's up with the police in Mazatlan? I mean, Mazatlan is in Sinaloa, you know, and so they're connected to the cartel and everything else. And um, you just have to be careful, you know. Um, Mazatlan is where they caught El Chapo. He was in a, a condo there or in a, in a, residence there that was about actually about a kilometer away from where I lived when I was there. Wow. I walked, I walked past it every day when I would go to the beach. So, um, of course I had no idea, but I saw later on the news when he was arrested there, I was like, Oh, I know that neighborhood. <laughs> so, so you've lived in Thailand, Korea, anywhere else? Where, where have you traveled to and where do you see yourself staying for the long term? Um, so I, again, I, I, I lived in Mexico for about six months. Um, and then, and that's it in terms of places I've lived. Um, um, travel, I've traveled a lot. I traveled a lot for work this last couple of years. So, um, I've seen, I've seen a fair amount. There's more places I would like to see and go. Um, long-term is tricky. I don't really know. Um, I've not found a place that has exactly everything i want and so my vision has sort of been um to spend to, to divide my time the places that i have that have things that i like um and of course corona has made that extremely challenging and this plan may go off the rails if uh, travel continues to be as problematic as it is right now but mm, i guess that's more of my long-term 
idea is that I'd like to spend time in a variety of places that I really like. And if I split my year that way, great. You know, that's cool. Um, and, uh, sorry, sorry, I I forgot. There's one more question I want to ask, um, which is at, at one point going back to, you know, you being a missionary, at what point did you realize like, this is not for me? Like, this is not, I don't think I can believe I can follow the beliefs of my church anymore. At what point did you start to question? When did it start to unravel? Because for me, I had a big faith crisis. Like I was Mm -hmm. all gung ho about it. Like I was a conservative reformed Christian and I wanted like, I want to be, I want to be a pastor for Jesus and I want to save lives and stuff like that. And I just want to like, you know, worship the Trinity every day. Like I want to be a pastor. Mm -hmm. I was all about it. You know, that was my major, biblical and theological studies, you know, in Massachusetts at the school that I was too. Yeah. um, I I was all about it. Like I was like, this is what I want to be. Like, um, you know, I'll, I'll be straight edge Christian, never drink, never smoke, never do drugs, no sex before marriage. Oh, Mm -hmm. Uh, um, and uh, like, you know, I, at one point I believed that the earth was 6,000 years old. Like I was in it that deep and I was that in my eyes, I was that hardcore because it was just like, this is the Bible, you know, and, and this is the inerrant word of God. And then after taking some history classes and like um, talking with a very kind, generous and intelligent New Testament professor who I would spend some hours at his office, like arguing with him, like, but mm-hmm. if this, the, the Bible, if, if there's a contradiction here, then this means it's, it's then you can't be because this is an inner work. And it's just like, well, you know, like this was, this is a book mine that was written by like a variety of people at different times for a different audience. There's all this historical context. Like if you really want to appreciate the text and the word of God, then if this is the word of God, then you want to understand the whole historical context. So sometimes you'll read this thing. It might not make sense. No, this is inerrant. This is the perspicuity of scripture. It must be perspicuous, right? It must be very obvious. You know, so long story short, you know, I had this whole faith crisis. I remember this moment where like my faith is just like my in my hand. It's like sandcastle of belief structure. Mm-hmm. And it's just like I'm walking away from my Testament, New Testament professor's office. And I'm just like, I feel like my whole world is come crumbling apart. Um, like, I was like, oh, this is all this is all bullshit. Like, this is all this is not real. Like, what do I live for now? What, what gives me meaning if not for God and Jesus? Right. What meaning does my life have? It was like one. It was probably the most traumatic experience of my life to lose like all my belief. There's no heaven. Like after we die, what happens? You know, right. um, and that's just this is just me scratching the first t- surface for the first time. Like I was so like deep in it for like my whole life. I, I used to believe that I was going to go to hell. And then I thought mm-hmm. I was going to be saved, and I want to be a pastor. And now, right. but now I and I was so I experienced spiritual ecstasy where like I'm in just like months of tear, like spiritual communion with God. And then, but then all of a sudden, I can't believe in God anymore. All my joy is taken away. My meaning for life is taken away. Like I want to kill myself, right? Like well, my life has no meaning. I don't know if you went through something that extreme, but I'm so glad I went through that experience. I and so yeah. I'm I'm super curious. I always have been. Like at what point, Matt? It doesn't have to be as dramatic as mine, but I want I really want to know what point did you start shifting away. Yeah, I mean, I don't. My definitely, my it definitely wasn't as dramatic as yours. I had a very combative relationship with religion my whole life, um, and so when I was in junior high school, I refused to go to church. I stopped, I, and and at the time, it was a big. It was partly a power struggle with my parents, you know. But I fought very hard, and I there were things that just didn't click for me. Um, I've always struggled with. Um, the way prayer is usually explained and how, um, how that is supposed to work. Um, 
and among other things. And then, you know, in, as I got into high school, I started thinking maybe I, I realized one that there was a huge amount of just power struggle happening. And I'm a very independent person. I have been for all, you know, a long time. And I just, I don't like to be controlled like that. And so for my, for me, a lot of it was my parents said, you have the choice to go to church, but the choice is always you have to go. And that's not a choice. And it would drive, just drove me crazy, the inconsistency, right? So but as I got into high school, I was like, well, maybe I've not really given the religion itself a fair shake. So I started to get into it. I saw a lot of good. My brother had served a mission. My dad had served a mission. Um, and it had been, you know, my family had been, had benefited from it. And, um, so I thought, yeah, let's, let's dig into this and let's see. And I felt good about it. I felt like it was good and that there were a lot of things that it was, that it would be able to help a lot of people. So I went on a mission as a missionary. Um, there were things that, you know, I, I had been consistently told work a certain way and then they didn't really, um, which bothered me. Um, there were, there's just always been questions that I don't, really feel like I can get solid or comfortable answers with. And then I started to find out more about things that the church had sort of intentionally covered up, misled people about, not been really truthful about. And, you know, I think everyone's human and people make mistakes and people, you know, lie to save face and do all sorts of things. But if you are claiming to be, um, you know, receiving revelation from god or some sort of higher anything i think you have to be held to a higher standard and um and that it that bothered me um i remember from again for me it wasn't this big dramatic thing i woke up one sunday in college i went to church i woke up i felt great it was a wonderful day beautiful day i felt really good i went to church and i you know you know me i can't really keep my mouth shut and so there were things at church, we were having a discussion, and there were a bunch of things that just weren't consistent and bothered me. And so I just, start, you know, started asking questions about it, and it just turned into sort of this confrontational argument. Um, and I left church that day just being like, I felt great this morning, and I went to church, and I feel terrible now. And, <laughs> and I don't know why I'm doing it. The questions that I have, there aren't answers for. Not currently. Um, there are people that genuinely go to church to recharge, to recharge their spirit, to recharge their soul, to take a break from when life is really horrible and to feel connected to a community. And I felt like that day I had detracted from anyone who was trying to do that. And I hadn't benefited myself because I left. I had a beautiful day and I felt great in the morning and I felt really, really anxious and agitated and irritated and upset when I finished. And I thought, why am I doing this? And so I said, I'm going to take a break. I'm just going to take a break. And I, you know, I tend to fixate on things. Um, when I focus, I focus a lot. And so there were these issues, these problems, these doctrinal questions that I just kept going round and round and round and round. Right. Can you, can you share like maybe one salient example in the, the scriptures, or maybe it was like a philosophical thing that you had a an argument with a friend or, or a teacher? Um, well, um, that, I know it's been a while. Yeah, but it's not so much that it gets a while. It's, it's, it turns into a whole lot of backstory in order to get to, to where it's relevant, right? But uh, I think a simple example is prayer. I still argue with my dad about this one. Um, and I, 
So the idea, and, and again, there's different versions of it. So I'm giving you very much what the sort of the Mormon version and maybe even the Mormon version from where I was from sort of was, was is that, that you pray to God and God will answer your prayers in his own time and in his own way. And, uh, and then, and that's, that's the deal, you know, and I found through both being a missionary and, and life in general, that like there were times that I felt like I got answers to prayers that then turned out to not be anything like I expected. So I started to question, okay, how do I know if it's an answer or not? And the Mormon church has a version of this that's like, well, there's certain things that God's going to say yes to, and there's certain things that he's not. And then, so then the question is then why ask? If you pray and the only answer can be A, that's the only answer you can get. You just keep praying until you get A. What are you doing? Like, what, what's the point? And so I got to this point where I just felt like going through that motions of praying caused, made me more frustrated in life than not. Because this idea that, that, that a God loved me and cared about me was somehow going to answer my prayer and take care of me left me feeling frustrated and disappointed when it didn't happen or I'd felt that it didn't happen where the, the, when I just said, look, if there is a God, he doesn't care about me. If there's not a God, then, then I'm just going to go about my life and it's up to me to sort my stuff out. And like good things are going to happen to me. And bad things are going to happen to me. And that's just life. And you deal with it and you keep going. To me, that was much more comforting because I didn't have this like expectation of a loving father looking out for me that didn't, didn't do anything from my perspective. Right. Um, and I think this is, you know, if so, so that, that was sort of one of the issues with prayer, right? If the timeline for, the answer is up to God and not up to the immediately the immediate crisis that you're going through and that you feel like you're going through, then what's the point? So again, people who have faith and believe um, will have a, a counter argument to that. And I understand that that's fine. But for me, I didn't find it comforting. I didn't find peace in it. I found the exact opposite. And so, um, yeah, so I took a break that, that Sunday after that, that and it was a discussion about some other things as well. But I, I just said, why do I keep doing this? I'm just going to set it aside for a little while. Um, like I said, I, I tend to fixate on things. So like I set it aside. Once it's not such a, those things aren't such big deal, maybe I can come back to it. But as I got it, when, when I stopped, like I, the next week, it was this huge relief. And like, I just haven't missed it. I haven't missed going. I haven't missed trying to reconcile these things that don't really reconcile. Um, very easily. I, you know, I've, I've learned and seen a lot more things that the church does that I disagree with. Um, shortly after that, the church was really opposed to, um, to gay marriage, which didn't make any sense to me. Mormonism has its own version of the marriage ceremony. So they don't even really care about what state marriages are. Um, mm. and if you want to talk about history, like the Mormon church has a history of non-traditional marriages. Um, so it seemed a bit hypocritical for them to be that opposed to like other people wanting something like I just didn't get it. You know, I didn't get it. It didn't make sense to me. Um, and then there's been more and more as I've been away. There's been more and more things that I look back on or things, changes that they've made that I go, I'm not on board. I'm not on board with it, you know. And so, yeah, that was kind of it for me.
Thank you for sharing that. Uh, what would you say to other, I don't know, young believers, or either they go to Mormon church, or maybe they go to synagogue, or maybe they go to a Catholic church, like that are kind of like coming into the, maybe someone's listening to this 14 or 17, and they're just having their questions for the first time about the faith or like the religious institution of church and their community. Um, to, to like, they're starting to ask these kind of questions. What would you say to your younger self, right? When you start to have these questions? You just keep asking them. Like, I mean, I think that you're, I think everyone's sort of spirituality or, you know, emotional, whatever, I don't want to, whatever you want to call it, right? It's up to you to find and reconcile what, like what you believe and what you care about in life. And, you know, there are, you know, there's, religion has done a lot of good and a lot of horrible things in the world. Just like just just like every human, right? We have a lot. We don't. We do good things and we do bad things. And so, you know, if you find if you find peace and you find you know comfort and those things in religion, that's fine. But if there's if you have questions and it doesn't it doesn't make sense to you, keep asking. Like you need to find where you're happy. I guess for me, I'm comfortable with the decision I made because I think I'm I'm being honest to myself. And I think that that matters. And I think that if I turn out, it turns out that there is a God and he's incredibly disappointed in me for my life decisions. Um, I'll deal with that and I'll talk to him. But like from my perspective where I'm at, I don't think um, I would live differently. I think I treat people well. I think I live my life the way I'm where I can sleep well at night. I look in the mirror and I like what I see. And, um, you know, for the most part, there's always, of course, things you could improve, whatever. But like in general, I don't have any regrets about that stuff. And I think, you know, I think that's. Yeah, I think, you know, if people are going through that or looking into that or curious about it, like, you know, if you're trying to find religion or you're trying to leave again, you've got to follow your own path, you know, and life takes all kinds of twists and turns. And you never all, you know, when I was a missionary, I didn't expect this is where I'd end up. Right. And, but, I, but this is where I am. And, um, same here. Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm okay with it. That's the thing is I'm okay with it. Like, I don't, I don't see that that's a bad thing that life has sent me in a direction that I didn't anticipate. That's life. Indeed. Like I'm, I'm actually, despite you know, the, the trauma and the, the turmoil and the confusion I went through in, in my, my, my late teens and early twenties. Like, I'm so glad I, I had all these experiences. Like I have my problems with religion and I have my problems with church and I see the good and bad just as much as you do probably, or in a similar way. And, yeah. um, I'm, I'm glad that I actually like turned away from that. I feel like in a way that God has answered my prayers, right? If he is there, like, mm -hmm. Um, that I actually am in a greater position to live a, a more effective, meaningful life, like doing this podcast, for example, or being a club party promoter for some time, seeing the best and worst of humanity, connecting with people, learning hospitality, treating them, actually listening to them, just like as my pastors did for me. And I feel like mm -hmm. I've been able to reach a wider audience than I ever would have as a, like a pastor in a church, and which is why I have this podcast. So, so in a way, like I'm still carrying on like the spirit of that dream of being a pastor, which is connection to people, being a healer. And so this yeah. is what I want to do for people, people who feel like they are disconnected because they're like 
a, a minority, right? Like me, maybe being the only Asian kid in the neighborhood that doesn't even speak uh, their own like mother tongue or like right. just a kid who's like having a hard time wrestling with questions in church and like, you know, other teachers or other um, people in the church are like criticizing them for, for doubting their faith and like all that stupid stuff, you know, like, so there's so many confused, hurt people out there, young, young guys and girls. And like, I feel like this with the power of the internet, as I always say, uh, the internet, mm-hmm. you know, it's so amazing that we have this opportunity co- to connect and share these awesome conversations with people around the world so that they can like, like kind of glean good like wisdom and interesting facts and ideas and different attitudes and different like levels of um, like conscious energy so that they can take that in for their own. So maybe they can have like a, a quantum leap in their mental time. They don't have to like have all these life experiences by themselves. They don't have to be alone. They can read and listen to great books and they can listen to yeah. awesome podcasts and they can listen to this conversation between you and me and you. And I hope someone listening to this can take away something so they can accelerate their spiritual psychological maturity so that yeah. by the time that they're 28 like me or 40 like you, that they're hopefully like miles above us in terms of personal spiritual maturity. And they're just closer to where they want to be in, in life. Because when yeah. I look at, when I look at you, Matt, like um, there's uh, one of my favorite YouTube channels these days is called the nomad capitalist. Do you ever, you ever follow sure. that with Andrew mm-hmm. Henderson? Right. And yeah, yeah. he talks, he, and he talks about like having homes around the world um, that you own and like spending some month parts of the month like in this country and that like a little bit of Mexico here a little bit of Colombia there a little bit of uh, Kuala Lumpur Malaysia there and I when I see when I think about that like oh man what that's that's awesome you know I hope to have like my own version of that when I think about that lifestyle the nomad capital lifestyle shilling for Andrew Henderson here like you're one of the first people that come to mind I'm like Matt is really like living that dream and uh, which I think is like so cool and so inspiring and also because like you're such a good person like you 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 deserve all the success because um you earn it and you're like a good person and like um i I love you dude and so uh i appreciate that and um yeah dude so i want to thank you for this time um is there anything you want to share with people out there who are just like you know like going through a rough time or like they're just trying to figure out what maybe they want to do in life and um maybe they're going through their own spiritual struggle um is there anything you'd like to share well, I mean, I mean, we didn't talk about the the rough period of, in my life. Oh, yeah, actually, that is one of my well, questions. Sorry. Um, yeah. what what was one of the hardest times in your life? Oh, okay. So, I mean, I, I mentioned, you know, I started trading in '07. I traded the crash in 2009. I got let go from my company, um, and I. I would at the time I felt optimistic. I'd put money in the bank. I uh, was, you know, not con- not horribly concerned about things. But things just got worse. Um, I'd started. I ended up starting a company uh, with another uh, trader, and we were trading our own thing, uh, which was going really well until um, he didn't uh, follow our risk parameters, and we got wiped out. Um, and, uh, so after about, you know, I'd put about two years of work and a bunch of my savings into this and time and energy and, you know, into this company and then it disappeared. Um, you know, like at that time, you know, from when, from, uh, what was it? Oh, nine to 2010, I lost 95% of my income. Um, I took a 95% hit on income, which was massive, of course. Um, and, and then, um, yeah, like things just kept going down for me. Um, 
you know, not, not straight down. I started sailing, which I loved. And I became a certified sailing instructor, which was great. But then that be turned, that turned into my full-time job, um, which was fun, but didn't make any money. Um, I ended up getting out of my apartment. Um, I'd lost, basically ended up losing everything. And I was, you know, I would say residence free homeless sounds a bit harsher than what it actually residence was. Residence free. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I was I was residence free for a year. You were residence challenged for a cheeky bit. Yeah, for about a year and a half I lived off of the kindness of my friends and family. Uh, as and I mean it wasn't that I wasn't working, but I just, you know, I wasn't making any money. And so I had some dear friends in Chicago that let me sleep on their floor uh that never gave me grief about buying groceries or sharing. They always said just help yourself to what's in the fridge and eat. Um, they sent me work when they could, um, they went out of their way to make my life better when it was really horrible. Um, my, you know, I had my sister spotted me cash when I needed it. Um, and I had literally no idea how I was going to pay it back or when. And I told her then I was like, I, I will pay you back, but I, I don't know when I can do it. You know, I don't have any income basically. And so that was rough. Um, like I said, I bounced around. I slept on floors. I slept in spare rooms. I slept on couches. I slept on boats in the harbor when I couldn't find a place to sleep at night. Um, and I just kind of scrambled, you know. Um, How old were you at the time? I was 30, maybe like 31. Yeah. Yeah, in early 30s. Um, and again, like, you know, um, I, again, I'd, I'd been trying to keep myself afloat and wiped out my, my savings. So I was just living best I could, you know, some good things came to, from that. You know, I learned to just say yes to life. Sometimes you just say, yes, life throws something towards you and you go, well, yeah, sure. It's not the plan, but I'm just going to do it, you know? Mm. Um, but things, things were rough. I, I started, I kind of got the mantra of, you know, be positive. Things can always get worse which sounds sort of twisted and ridiculous, but, I, but for me, it was comforting. Be grateful for today and be grateful for the problems I have today because I can't imagine there will be, there, there could be worse things and you might get them the next day. And there were many days that I did. And so um, I learned to be grateful for the good things that I have right now, even when things aren't perfect. Um, and it took me a long time. I mean, I, I left Chicago on a motorcycle. I didn't have, I couldn't afford to stay in the winter because the harbor closed. So I, I rode to Mexico. I, and it was a great adventure and I have a great story from it. Um, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, but I a was motorcycle broke. from Chicago to, yeah, Chicago to Mexico and you were broke. Yeah. So I had, I'd saved up my tips and I had a, 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 a bit of cash that I'd put in that I had with me. Um, but I, you know, I, yeah, I rode all the way South. My sister was in Juarez at the time. So I spent a few weeks in Juarez and then I went and visited a cousin who was in Culiacan is in the middle of Sinaloa. And then I went to Mazatlan and got myself a little place on the beach. I thought that there, there was a Harbor there and I thought maybe I could get work sailing and I'd be able to work on a boat or do something to kind of keep food coming in. And, um, it didn't work. Um, I wasn't able to. So, but again, I, I made the most of it. I bought a surfboard. And I would take the bus with my surfboard and go surfing. And it was emotionally healing, um, although I still wasn't getting paid and I still wasn't sure uh, what was going to happen next. Um, and then 
you know, things started to turn around at the end of the year. I mean, the, I was working for a, a company. They, they refused to pay me for the work that I'd done for them during the winter. So I got hit there. But I found another company, I, I, a friend from college, a mentor from college got me working as a consultant at a hedge fund. And I made, you know, in two weeks, I made what I lost in that whole summer or that whole winter, you know? Wow. So like, like life can change. It can go really good to really bad, very fast. And it can go the opposite, you know? So you just have to keep your chin up. You have to just keep, keep fighting and keep pushing and like things you know, things are, when things are good, they're not going to stay good. But when things are bad, they're not going to stay bad necessarily either. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah. And then eventually through that whole thing, I started working at this hedge fund doing consulting and then I found the job in Korea and then I packed up and moved and, and just said, I've been in Chicago. I've had some ups and downs. I'm ready for something different. Let's, uh, let's reset a little bit. And I gave away the, the friends that had helped me out. Um, I gave away most of my stuff to them as a thank you, um, that I'd had in storage. And then I just bounced, jumped on a plane. So that's awesome. Would um, you say you're happy these days? I am happy these days. You know, there's, I, I, again, I think happiness is more of a goal. Um, there's things that you're always grateful for and happy about. Um, but there's always life's life's never perfect. There's life's, you know, that's just the way it is. I love being alive. I'll say Same. that. I love, I love being alive. I love the twists and turns. Um, I like the adventure of it all. And, um, I'm really grateful for what I have. So, and, and I'm really grateful too, man. And I just, I think that would be a good way to end it. Um, thank you so much, Matt. If, if, is there any way you would like people to reach you? I don't think you use Instagram, do you? Um, I, I have Instagram. I'm not super active on social media. I've, I've become less and less active on social media, but you can reach me at smartypants982 on Instagram if you care to. I'll, I'll be honest. It's probably not that interesting and probably not worth following. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for your mat. In the meantime, enjoy surfing in Phuket and uh, we'll have a cheeky rooftop barbecue sooner or later. Sounds good. Sounds All good, right. man. Peace out, Mime Timers. Thank you so much. Bye.